Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Sam Williams, and just a couple of bits of admin before we get into the show proper. Big shout-out to Luke Austin, who bought me a coffee on the Buy Me A Coffee page, which you can find a link to in the show notes. I really, really do appreciate it when you guys go above and beyond, as Luke has done. And it wouldn't be right if I didn't wish all you lovely listeners the best of luck as we approach the august changeover particularly those of you who are starting your imt training who are facing the prospect of paces within the next couple of years but especially a huge shout out to any f1s who are listening starting off their career in what is truly the best job in the world and i hope you enjoy this episode of the pre-paces podcast Welcome back team to the Pre-Paces podcast and today it's the first solo episode of the year. In our last episode I chatted to ophthalmic surgeon Mr. Steve Lash about visual loss and fundoscopy and one thing we briefly mentioned was the condition retinitis pigmentosa. Now this is obviously a rare condition but it ticks all the boxes for a classic Paces station. Stable signs that are unlikely to change. Tick. Characteristic diagnostic appearances, tick, requires a comprehensive and complex assessment to accurately diagnose, tick. Patients otherwise are generally well and unlikely to suddenly deteriorate and put out of the examination, tick. So the crux of this episode is that retinitis pigmentosa is a rare and multifaceted condition with a number of distinct syndromes which you may be expected to pick up on in paces. Some of the conditions I'll go on to talk about have a prevalence of literally one in a million, but saying that, it's one of those conditions which ends up coming up in exams time and time again. And it's for that reason I've decided to dedicate an entire episode to it to best prepare you for this Paces Station, which, for whatever reason, the powers that be in the RCP choose for Paces Stations time after time. So hold on to your hats. Let's get into this episode looking at 
Retinitis pigmentosa. So, to start off, I should make a disclaimer that obviously I'm a cardiologist, I'm not an ophthalmologist, and I wouldn't pretend to know any more about eyes than someone like Steve Lash, who joined us in our last episode. But to tell you the truth, retinitis pigmentosa is not that common, and it's for that reason that Steve felt it would be better to look at a broad range of causes, including the more common causes which we talked about, rather than focusing on something like RP, which is so uncommon. So, what exactly is retinitis pigmentosa? It's a genetic condition characterised by all the things we talked about in the last episode. Progressive visual loss, characterised by night blindness, and on examination, retinal pigmentation in a bone spicule pattern, typically in the peripheral retina. The onset of symptoms is usually in early adulthood or middle age, RP also covers a wide range of possible differential diagnoses, including various syndromic forms, which we will be touching on later in this episode. All of these have varying inheritance patterns, and so retinitis pigmentosa itself doesn't have a single inheritance pattern. So the next thing to discuss is where you're most likely to see this station in your PACES exam. Now, last time we talked about a station five, which I feel is probably the most likely. You expected to take a focused history of gradual visual loss and probably expected to perform fundoscopy and a focused eye examination. But you may also be expected to perform a full and comprehensive eye examination in a station three. So if we assume that we're starting off with a station five, you'll be starting off taking a focused history from the patient. Now, the first thing to think about is when did they start to lose their vision? Now, RP typically, from what I've read, tends to affect patients in their first or second decades of life. So between the ages of approximately naught and 20. As the disease progresses, it develops into tunnel vision and eventually often patients lose their vision entirely by about 60 years of age. The features of the history which you'll want to look at are the same things Steve and I discussed last time. What do they mean by visual loss or or changes in vision? Do they mean blurring, distortion, field loss? Are they bumping into things or, or do they have double vision? If it's blurring of vision, is it close objects or far objects? If it's field loss, where is it? Is it in the center? around the periphery, in the superior or inferior visual field. In RP, it's more typically in the periphery than centrally. So you may expect more symptoms such as bumping into things or unable to see out of the corners of their eyes. The onset is typically gradual over months and years, and it's a painless loss of vision, often binocular in nature, but it may obviously affect one eye sooner than the other. Now, I don't want to duplicate too much of what Steve and I talked about in the last episode, but obviously, as a matter of routine, things you need to talk about in any history, past medical history, particularly asking about diabetes or hypertension as causes of possible retinopathy, critically in a retinitis pigmentosa type history, you'll need to ask about the family history, even if you're not 100% sure on the mode of inheritance, The fact that so many of these conditions do have a hereditary nature means that it's likely to be relevant when it comes to presenting your patient back to the examiner. 
and social history. As Steve mentioned in our last episode, smoking is obviously extremely detrimental to the health of our eyes. But most importantly, talking about the effect on function of the patients, whether or not they drive and what their occupation is. Often in paces, there is an underlying issue which the examiners want you to try and tease out. And it may be something as simple as the patient having an occupation which requires them to have sharp eyesight. And then I thought before we move on to the examination, I wanted to talk a bit more about some of the more characteristic syndromic forms of retinitis pigmentosa. These are the types of conditions which you will probably never ever see in clinical practice, but which for paces are the ones which you just need to be able to pull out the bag if you're questioned on it by the examiners. So let's jump into talking about some of those. We'll start off with one called Usher's syndrome. This is an autosomal recessive pattern of inheritance. And there's many different types Uh, From the reading I looked at, there are mutations in at least 11 genes leading to three distinct phenotypes of the condition. But importantly, it's the most commonly associated with retinitis pigmentosa. Up to 15% of cases of RP are Usher's syndrome. And the key hallmarks are varying severities of a sensory neural hearing loss depending on the subtype of Usher's. One of the things which pops up about ushers is that most children with ushers are born with moderate to profound hearing loss. So what does that mean for your paces examination? Hearing aids. Look out for hearing aids and we'll be touching on them again in another couple of these uh, syndromic forms of RP. Moving on to the next one for now. Bardet-Beadle syndrome. And that's Bardet spelled B-A-R-D-E-T hyphen B-I-E-D-L syndrome. Again, most cases are autosomal recessive, but believe it or not, there are other other patterns of inheritance of uh, Bardet-Beadle syndrome. Um, It's less common than Usher's, and it has several other hallmarks which you could find on examination. So possible things to look out for if you eyeball a patient and you've taken a history and performed an examination which is consistent with retinitis pigmentosa. Look at their BMI as an eyeball assessment. Are they obese? Are they larger than your average patient? Polydactyly, do they have extra fingers or do they have scars from previous excision of these fingers? In terms of renal abnormalities, what I was able to find is that they're usually structural abnormalities such as cysts in the kidneys. Now, I don't think you'd be expected to perform an abdominal examination at the same time as doing a focused eye examination. Um, but one thing you met which you could look out for is the chance of them having severe renal disease. So do they have signs of dialysis, for example? Do they have a tunneled line? Do they have an AV fistula present in their arm? Again, this is extremely rare condition, so it may be unlikely, but still worth thinking about. Moving on to our next form of RP, Kern-Sayre syndrome. That's K-E-A-R-N-S hyphen S-A-Y-R-E. It's got a 1 to 3 in 100,000 prevalence and is a mitochondrially inherited condition, which, as I'm sure you know, means it's inherited from the maternal genome. 
It's characterized by retinitis pigmentosa and another hallmark you should be expected to look out for, a progressive and complex ophthalmoplegia. So in your focused eye examination, you may have been prompted to perform fundoscopy first and found signs of retinitis pigmentosa. If you then proceed to perform ocular movements and find there to be a complex ophthalmoplegia, consider Kern-Serre. These patients also suffer from other extraocular manifestations, including cardiac conduction defects, much more uh, in my ballpark now. Uh, so you may find something like a pacemaker in situ in the uh, pectoral area. They also uh, are known to suffer from ataxia. Again, this might just be something which you manage to cram into the last minute or so of your examination. But if you can demonstrate ataxia in a patient with ophthalmoplegia and retinitis pigmentosa, you can make that one in 100,000 diagnosis of kern serre and wow your examiners. Now, one of the sad things about all three forms of RP that we've discussed so far, so just to recap, Usher syndrome, Bardet beetle and kern serre all of them have no known cure and essentially after diagnosis, apart from supportive treatment and, and helping them to try and live as independent a life as possible, there's no medical treatment that we can do for these people. However, there are some other forms of retinitis pigmentosa where there, it is purported that there may be some medical options to either prevent or delay the uh, deterioration of their vision. So we're going to talk about some of those just after this short break. As I've mentioned since pretty much the start of this podcast, PassTest.com has a fantastic online revision resource and not only do they have multiple retinal photographs to practice your recognition of the relevant fundoscopy findings, but they also have over a hundred video cases spanning near enough every single type of station which could come up in the exam. So to sign up and get access, just click on any of the links in the show notes, which are quite obviously labelled as sign up to pass test here. That's all for now. Let's get back into this week's episode. Now, probably like many of you, when I was approaching my revision to retinitis pigmentosa, I pretty much just thought there was absolutely nothing that could be done about this condition. But amongst the syndromic forms of the condition, there are several where, according to my research, there may be some medical interventions which, as I said, can delay or prevent the progression of this condition. One of these is Refsum's disease, and that's Refsum's spelt R-E-S-F-U-M apostrophe S. It's another autosomal recessive condition, also known as phytanic acid oxidase deficiency. Now, phytanic acid is something which is found in dairy products, including animal fats, and is usually broken down as a natural process of digestion by phytanic acid oxidase. The deficiency of this enzyme means that naturally you get a buildup of phytanic acid in the body, which accumulates in organs, not dissimilar to something like iron in hemochromatosis. And the consequences of the buildup of phytanic acid are associated with retinitis pigmentosa. It's another condition similar to kern serre that is characterized by ataxia. And also similar to ushers, they are also prone to developing deafness as well. 
A couple of the other features of the condition include a polyneuropathy, if you're uh, required to perform a full peripheral nervous examination. But again, this is going to be unlikely if you are also performing fundoscopy. So if you do pick up on any of these signs, for example, if the patient is ataxic, if the patient does have a hearing aid in combination with the signs consistent of retinitis pigmentosa, you might suspect that refsums could be a potential differential diagnosis. The most important management intervention which can be made in this condition is for the patient to abstain from consuming phytanic acid. Obviously, this reduces the buildup of phytanic acid in the system and prevents the progression of this condition. So it's about patient education, informing and educating them about which foods contain phytanic acid and which ones they should stop consuming entirely. And that way the phytanic acid doesn't build up in the system and their sight may be saved. Moving on to the second of our three conditions where some interventional management may prevent the onset or progression of retinitis pigmentosa. And the second one is literally a one in a million condition. That's it, that is truly its prevalence. And that is A-beta lipoproteinemia, otherwise known as Bassen-Kornzweig disease. Now, this condition is characterized by an inability to make certain lipoproteins which aid in the absorption of fat and cholesterol, um, particularly interfering with the absorption of the fat-soluble vitamins, which I'm sure you will all remember are vitamins A, D, E, and K. So as well as retinitis pigmentosa, patients can also develop ataxia, and a recurring theme in these patients, um, peripheral neuropathy and steatorrhea. According to the research which I've done uh, for this episode, replacing the vitamin A, which is lost through this condition, can result in acute restoration of retinal function when used in the early stages of the disease. And the addition of vitamin E can also help stabilize the condition. So there you go, another condition where meaningful intervention can be made with something as simple as vitamin supplementation. And last, but by certainly no means least, the last condition we're going to be looking at is familial isolated vitamin E deficiency. This is another rare condition which is autosomally recessively inherited uh, and also similar to our previous conditions causes adult onset ataxia, dysarthria and interestingly also causes worsening proprioception as well as retinitis pigmentosa. And again, something as simple as vitamin supplementation. The clue is in the name, isolated vitamin E deficiency. Treatment with vitamin E for this condition has been reported to halt disease progression. So there we are. Three conditions where unfortunately there is no cure and three conditions where there are meaningful interventional management steps we can take as clinicians managing these patients to prevent or delay the worsening of their eyesight. Having said that, I have never come across any of these conditions in my clinical practice and I qualified back in 2015. So that speaks to how often you're likely to see these conditions. It may be one of those things that you learn for paces and then forget for pretty much the entirety of the rest of your career. But hey, what are exams for anyway?
Moving on to the examination part of this station. Now, we already discussed the findings on fundoscopy of retinitis pigmentosa in our episode with Steve Lash, but just to repeat, the typical appearance is critical to recognizing this condition. It's often found bilaterally in both retina and has the characteristic appearance of widespread black dots or clumps of dots in a pattern resembling bone spicules around the periphery of the retina and it often spares the macula. In the later stages you'll be expected to see thin small thready blood vessels leading to a pale optic disc which is suggestive of optic atrophy. Next in the examination, I would suggest trying to perform a visual acuity assessment. If they're unable to read the Snellen chart, you can start off by asking if they can see any of the letters on it at all. If not, can they detect movement, such as simply waving your hand in front of their face? If they can't see that, ask if they can detect the perception of light only using the pen torch. Next up, don't forget to check eye movements. Like I mentioned earlier, if there's evidence of a complex ophthalmoplegia, then consider Kern-Sayre syndrome as a possible differential diagnosis. After that, you're looking around the patient at various other bodily systems for signs of a possible syndromic cause. Looking for hearing aids found in ushers, Kern-Sayre or Refsums. Looking at the hands for scars from finger amputations suggestive of polydactyly in Barde beetle and checking for a pacemaker in Kern's Sayre. Quickly rattling through the investigations for these patients. First of all, you're going to want to get full field electroretinography. This is a test to measure the electrical response of the retina to light, where you would expect to see a delay in the timing of the electrical signal and a reduction in the amplitude of the signal. Another investigation would be formal Humphreys visual field assessments. Formal color vision testing could be done using the Ishihara plates and retinal photography will give much more detailed images than your simple fundoscopic examination. An ERG or electroretinogram is another ophthalmological investigation which objectively measures rod and cone function in assessing the severity of the condition and follows the course of the condition. If there's any suspicion of a genetic syndrome of any sort, suggest referral to a geneticist and possible genetic testing. Other things to mention would be a referral to audiology for consideration for formal hearing assessments to assess deafness associated with a number of the conditions I've mentioned, and obviously a referral to an ophthalmologist who may manage these conditions more frequently than a medical registrar. When talking about the examination, obviously you're gonna start off by mentioning that these patients should be managed with an MDT approach, utilizing all members of the MDT, including occupational therapy for help with visual aids, the ENT team to help with screening for hearing loss, and genetic counseling if a specific diagnosis is suspected. Patient education is a really important part of management, which is worth mentioning to your examiner, explaining to the patient that there's no cure. Psychological support is one thing to consider for these patients, given this life-changing diagnosis. Consideration should be given to their job, their driving status. 
if in doubt about driving status, always mention that you would follow the DVLA guidelines with regard to eyesight. And genuinely, I can't think of much else that you might be asked to come up with when you come to present these patients back to your examiner. So listeners, I think that is pretty much everything that you might need to know when faced with a station of a patient with retinitis pigmentosa. Thank you for listening to this solo episode, the first one of 2022. Just the usual shout outs at the end of each episode. Don't forget to like, follow, subscribe, or leave a five-star review to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from you. Keep giving us a shout on our Twitter. It's at Prepaces Podcast. As I say every week, if you really want to go above and beyond, support the show. It's buymeacoffee.com slash Prepaces Podcast. For now, I am just about out of time. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pre Paces Podcast. <laughs>